Welcome to June's edition of Winning at Home's Home Run Club. And I thank you again for your faithful partnership. In fact, I again want to say to you, so many of you stop me and tell me you really enjoy listening to these Home Run Club editions that we send to you. I'm really glad. Our goal is to give you a taste of what's going on here at Winning at Home. We continue to grow. We continue to seek God for that growth. Uh, Pre-COVID, we would have been having 120, 125 new calls to our office Lately, it's been more toward 300, and so the increased desire for people to talk to someone, especially teens, children, are going through some challenging times. COVID has made us all uh, adjust to many things in life, and so our offices are very busy, and we are so grateful to you for your continued support, believing in what we're doing, and praying for us as we consider even expanded into other areas. So thanks for your prayers, thanks for your kindness, and thanks for your generosity in supporting us. I'm excited to be able to tell you that Steve Norman has joined our team. Steve is a pastor. He is a writer. He is a coach. He's going to be doing lots of different things on the winning at home front, and we're grateful to have him be a part of the team. And I'm looking forward today to having you listen to a speech he shared called Inside Out, developing and understanding your part and the part you play in the kingdom of God. And so, Uh, We're going to go to Steve sharing this live, and then I'll come back and give a little closing thought. But let's join now Steve as he shares the message inside out. About four years ago, I had to go to Los Angeles for a graduate school class. And so uh, because I was only going to be there for a short time, I coordinated with one of my friends who is the president of this seminary that I was attending to be able to say like, hey, would you, would you have any time to grab dinner? And so he said yes, and we locked it in and we were ready to go. And then I got there and the day before the dinner, he was like, hey, Steve, we had a little change of plans. I got invited to a movie premiere in Hollywood the night that you and I were supposed to hang out. I've got an extra ticket. Do you mind if we just kind of pivot and spend the night there instead of going dinner? I'm like, movie premiere, Hollywood? Yes, I'm in. Sign me up. So uh, because we had a short amount of time between when we left campus and when it started, we had a glorious and memorable dinner at Taco Bell. And then we walked across the street to this red carpet movie premiere. And it was, it was everything that like Entertainment Weekly said that it was going to be. There were like searchlights that were going up in the sky. There was a an actual red carpet going up and there were luxury cars coming by and letting the letting the stars of this worship band that were in the movie out and there's a velvet rope and there's security and there's a photographer and I, I didn't know that if you have a ticket you actually have to walk down the red carpet there wasn't an option for me to like go in a side door so my friend is like dressed to the nines because he's classy in that I didn't know I was going to movie premiere so I was wearing this right and I was like please nobody like nobody pay attention to the weird guy in the jeans just leave me alone uh, but it was it was a fascinating experience that I will never forget. And sometimes, when we've been going to church our whole lives, we forget that Palm Sunday is the ultimate red carpet story. Like people are creating a car, they're creating a pathway out of their very clothes and waving palms. It was kind of their, their official version of like taking pictures and capturing a moment to say something epic is happening. And when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, it was like he was pulling up to a red carpet in a limousine. The Bible says that centuries before, generations before, King Solomon, who was King David's son, rode a donkey down the very same path to go into Jerusalem. So for anybody to ride a mule down the Mount of Olives, through the Kidron Valley, into the eastern gate of Jerusalem, was participating in a coronation ritual. 
And this is why the crowd is losing their minds. They believe that they are witnessing history because to see a, someone crowned king is a once-in-a-lifetime event. And this is where we read the story. It says, when Jesus came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're also yelling, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Does that line sound familiar to anybody? People singing about peace, singing about heaven, speaking about glory. It's like the very same refrain that the angels had when Jesus showed up the first time around. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. He's like, even nature can't shut up about the majesty of this moment. But then the story takes an abrupt turn. You would think that Jesus at this pinnacle moment, some people finally recognizing that he is in fact the Messiah, that he knows himself to be, you would, you would think that that would be a good day at the office. But the text tells us that Jesus begins to weep. Not, not tears of joy, but tears of deep sorrow. As he approached the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies, he's predicting what's going to happen in 40 years with the Romans, will build an embankment or siege ramps against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to your ground. You and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus' heart is being torn in two for the spiritual condition of the city. Salvation and redemption is at their doorstep, but they don't have eyes to see it. So after this very poignant moment, Jesus enters the city through the eastern gate, the golden gate, the gate through which uh, the Jewish people still believe that the Messiah will enter through, and he moves immediately to the temple. And it says, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer. Some translations say a house of prayer for all nations. But you've made it a den of robbers. And every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because the people hung on his words. So let me set the scene here. Jewish pilgrims have come from all over the Mediterranean world to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Passover is their Thanksgiving, their 4th of July, and our version of Easter all rolled into one. It is the most important communal holiday of their calendar. And if you're traveling from far away and you know that the goal of the whole holiday is for you to be able to come to the temple and offer sacrifices, you have, you have a logistical challenge because most people couldn't figure out how to like cram a sheep into their carry-on luggage, right? So what would they do? They would bring cash and then when they got to Jerusalem, they would buy an animal and sacrifice that animal at the temple. Well, what's the problem? They all live under the rule of the Roman government. And the currency would have had a picture of Caesar on the coins. And some people in Rome believed that Caesar was a god. So you couldn't bring a coin into a holy place representing a god that was not your god. So some scholars believe that the Jewish people actually had to exchange their pagan money for Jewish money that they were legally allowed or ceremonially allowed to use to buy the animals that they needed to buy to make the sacrifices that they needed to make. Now what part of this is wrong? None of it. 
It's, it's kind of a complicated system, but it's moral, it's ethical, it's legal. It allows, it facilitates an efficient and God-honoring way for people to sacrifice over the Passover holiday. Jesus isn't ultimately taking an issue with what these people are doing. Fundamentally, his concern is where they are doing it. If you were to actually look at the temple complex of above, you would see that the temple building has two components. The most important part of the temple complex is called the Holy of Holies. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was. This is where the Jewish people believed that the presence of God actually rested. And only one person, the high priest, could go into the Holy of Holies, and even then he could only go in once a year. So that was the place that had the most limited access. Beyond that was the rest of the temple complex called the Holy Place, and priests could do their work there, and they could do it every day. So more people, but still a very small group. And then if you get outside of the building, there was a courtyard, and this is called the Court of the Jewish Men. If you're a Jewish man, this is where you could come and worship. And then beyond that, there was another zone called the Court of the Jewish Women. That's where Jewish women could come and, and reflect and pray and sing songs about God. And that area was bordered by a fence, a half wall. And on that wall, at every entry point, there was a little indicator that said, if you are not a Jew, you cross this line at penalty of your own life. Now, the Jewish people didn't have the legal authority to kill anybody who crossed that line, but they wanted to let you know that if you were not Jewish, this was a no trespassing zone. But beyond that line was called the court of the Gentiles. And it was an area that had been designated for people who weren't born Jewish, who didn't grow up hearing stories about the one true God, for them to come and reflect, for them to come and learn, for them to come and listen, for them to observe other people who are worshiping God, and for them to try to decide, is this a God that I want to give my allegiance or my faith or my confidence to? And so when the people had set up shops, where, where were they exchanging coins? Where were they selling sheep? They were doing it in the court of the Gentiles. In effect, they had blocked, obstructed, or boxed out all of the people who didn't know God who were coming to get their questions answered. And Jesus was losing his mind because he says, you, you have done something horrible. You have locked the doors that are supposed to let people come in. And rather than creating an environment of invitation, you have created an environment of exclusion. You are missing the point of what this is all about. Jesus says, you have elevated worship over mission. And some of us, completely unintentionally, and, and entirely like in, in what we perceive to be a healthy, normal way, have, have done the same thing. How many times have you rolled in and be like, oh, I'm really mad because I didn't get the seat that I wanted at church today, or my favorite parking spot, or my favorite worship leader singing my favorite song at my favorite volume? And we're like, we do this. We're like, this is for me, and I'm not getting what I want. And Jesus is like, uh-uh. We're going to do, do this because the kingdom is not about my personal preferences. The kingdom is not about my church experience. The kingdom is about a wave of God's love rolling over all of humanity, bringing in people who don't look, act, think, or vote like me and calling them home to Jesus. And if my life is not leveraged to facilitating that journey, then I am only blocking it and I am not walking in the heartbeat or the footsteps of Jesus. God is, God is a God who through the person of Jesus is living an invitational life. And if you and I want to follow Jesus, we cannot help but invite other people into it as well. So the good news is Easter is next week. Here's the problem. Many of us, including myself, view Easter as a special different day. 
But <laughs> when we read the Easter story, and don't forget to read it this way, on the very first day that there was an Easter Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead, it was a Sunday, but in the Jewish work week, a Sunday was what? It was a Monday. It was a day when nothing important happened, when everybody was at school or work. So Jesus took an ordinary, forgetful, kind of flyover day and turned it into the most important, pivotal moment in human history. So the truth is, Easter isn't something that we celebrate once a year. Easter is something that we happen every day because every day is a day that Jesus defeated sin, death, hell, and darkness forever. And that's worth getting excited about every day. Every day is Easter and every day is Christmas because every day is a day that Jesus breaks through the darkness with his light in. And so you and I have the privilege of living in that reality and then inviting other people into that reality. So let's, let's find out how people throughout Scripture have lived that kind of compelling and invitational life. The Scriptures remind us that Jesus is fiercely committed to bringing other people in. And so here are three examples that should compel us to live that kind of life. The first is this. Jesus is always inviting the runaway to come home. Jesus is inviting people who are stuck in their spiritual hurt and inviting them to come back to him. How many of you know someone who isn't part of a church community, not because they don't believe, but because they were deeply hurt by church people? And if you're watching online or you're at Ladysmith or you're Hayward, you, you know some of these people. Jesus says this, or the scriptures say this in Luke 15, the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 out in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Why does Jesus leave the 99 to find the one? Because the 99 don't want to help find it. And also, I, I had missed this for years. The one is not a person who is never a part of the family. It doesn't say that Jesus left 99 sheep to go find one cat. It says he left 99 sheep to go find one sheep, implying that what? They all used to be together. That the person who wandered away was somebody who used to call this group home. And I believe that sometimes we forget that there are people who we need to be inviting back in, not just an Easter service, but back into an Easter life who used to call themselves followers of Jesus, but now find themselves on the outside because somewhere along the way, someone stepped on their toes, hurt their feelings, or challenged the way that they see the world of the cross. Jesus is constantly inviting runaways to come back home. I don't know if any of you ever ran away. I did at the ripe age of like nine. I was in third grade. And I don't know what fight I had with my mom, but I was like, I, I can't live here anymore. I'm like, can't, I'm, I'm done. And my mom, like in her infinite wisdom, is like, okay, let's get you a suitcase and pack up your stuff. And uh, like, so she, she, she like just, she 
didn't call my bluff. She didn't argue me down. She didn't get upset. She's like, all right, let's, let's make sure that you, get, you got some clean underwear to take with you, right? And so, so she literally helped me pack my suitcase. She's like, do you know what you're going to eat? I was like, no. She's like, well, let me pack you a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I was like, yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. I'm still not living here anymore. I was like, you're not, you're not tempting me with your treats to get me to stay. And so um, she sent my brother, who's seven years older than I am, so he would have been like, what, 16? And so uh, we, I, I strike out on my newfound life. Now, mind you, it's December in suburban Chicago. And I get about three blocks away from my house, and my brother's like, have you thought this through? And I was like, no. He goes, you know where you're going to stay tonight? I was like, yeah, I'm going to stay at my friend Eric Johnson's house. He goes, does, your mo- does his mom know you're coming? I was like, no. He's like, well, you know that it's rude to like show up uninvited and invite yourself to spend the night. And I was like, oh, I hadn't really thought about that. <laughs> He's like, so what are you going to do? I was like, well, I'll just sleep here on the corner. Like I was that devoted to like doing my new life. I was going to be homeless at nine, right? <laughs> And uh, he's like, well, you know, there's a local ordinance that doesn't allow you to do that. You'll get arrested. Are you prepared to go to jail? And I was like, oh, no, this just got real. I was like, no, fine. Let's go home. So like I was like, on, I was like living on the streets for all of 17 minutes, right? <laughs> but in my mind, I was like, they don't know me. They don't love me. They don't understand me. I'm better off on my own. And there are some of us who have been doing that dance spiritually, Right? We're like, I'm my own person. I don't have to bend to anybody else's will. I don't have to follow anybody else's rules. I'm just doing my thing. And that sounds fun on the front end, but that is a dangerous way to live. And you run out of runway real quick, don't you? I had an opportunity to visit an orphanage in Kiev, Ukraine many years ago. And I remember talking to the the woman who was running this facility. I go, how many how many children do you have every year? And she goes, well, we start with about 50 and then we end up with less. I was like, oh, that's good. That means kids are getting adopted into like forever families, right? And she goes, no. I go, well, what's happened? Like, where are these kids going? And she's like, well, some of them run away to live on the streets again. I go, why would they do that? I was like, they get food here, they get clothing, they get shelter, they get love, they get an, an education, they learn about the love of God. And I had heard horror stories in other countries about kids who were living on the streets in Romania in order for them to survive in like these brutal winters would go into underground tunnels where heating pipes were carrying water to residences and you'd hear these nightmare stories about where these pipes would explode and children would literally lose their lives. And I was like, why would they walk away? And she goes, because I found over the years that some people would rather be free than be loved. They would rather be free than be loved. And Jesus loves us so much when he invites us into family, he goes, this is what it means to be a part of the family. These are are the boundaries. These are the guidelines. These are the promises that we make to one another. And people are like, you can't hold me down. You're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. Well, what's the price of that? The price of that is that we live alone and we live outside the protection and the cover and the grace and the kindness of God and his people. When you think this year about who you want to invite, not just to an Easter service, but to an Easter life, I want you to think about this question. Who are the spiritual runaways that you know? Who are the people who are keeping the message and the person of Jesus at arm's length because somewhere, somehow, they got hurt? And they need to be reminded that God is the healer of all that has been done to us. And that Jesus is trying to clear a pathway for runaways to come home. See, not not only is Jesus somebody who invites runaways to come home, he's somebody who invites outsiders to come in. 
Jesus doesn't only care about our spiritual hurts, he cares about our spiritual questions. And this is evidenced in the story that we read in Acts chapter 8. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Can we just stop at the first part of that sentence? It says, now an angel of the Lord came to Philip. The, 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 the writer of scripture is like, it's so ordinary for angels to come and talk to Philip that it's not even like worth making a big deal about. And the truth is, God speaks to us and longs to speak to us every day. And he might use the scripture to do it. He might use circumstances to do it. He might use a friend to do it. It is not beyond the realm of possibility that God might use an angel to do it. The question isn't, is God speaking? The question is, are we listening? Philip is listening, and this is the message from God. Go south to the road, the desert road, the, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So God basically said, like, just go to this intersection and stand by it. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official of all of the treasury of Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, he's sitting in a chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. Stop. Man's Ethiopian, so he's different culturally and racially. He is not born into the Jewish family. He's different religiously. He's a government official, so he's in a different financial income earning bracket than Philip. And finally, he's a eunuch, so like biologically and sexually he identifies as different than Philip. So these guys come, might as well come from completely different planets. Is there anything, is there any evangelistic script that Philip could have practiced to prepare him for this moment? No. But the Spirit nevertheless has divinely orchestrated an intersection between these two human beings. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. I love it. The, the Spirit has not given Philip like a list of instructions. He just gives him one line at a time. You ever notice that sometimes God is just like, I'm just going to give you one step at a time to take it. You're like, Lord, if you could just give me all 47 steps, that would be helpful. And he's like, that's not how this works. You take one step and then I'll give you the next one. It's like a divine scavenger hunt, right? Like you can only get the next clue when you are good at the first one. And I love Philip's enthusiasm. The, it says he ran up to the chariot. He's like, all right, Lord, let's go. And he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. This is confusing. So he invited Philip to come into the chariot and sit with him. And this is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was like a sheep led to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've ever been a part of an evangelistic training before. I've been through like a bunch of these over the course of the last 30 years. And usually they're like, okay, here are four spiritual laws or here are eight steps on the Romans road and you know, pick yours. But they always say like, this is the script and you do this and you do this and you do this and you do this. You know what I love about Philip? Philip didn't come into that conversation with any agenda other than to listen. He just started with listening. He's like, hey, what are you reading? The guy's like, Isaiah. He's like, do you get it? He's like, I am hopelessly lost. And then he goes, okay, I'm gonna, let's start with your question 
And then we're going to work our way back to Jesus. We're going to start with your question, and then we're going to work our way back to Jesus. And all of the other stuff that I think is important, that Jesus doesn't say is important, and you don't care about, we're not going to talk about that at all today. We're going to start with where you are, and we're going to end at Jesus, full stop. No extra layers, no fancy frills, no extra tricks, no leather interior, straight line from question to Jesus. That's it. And I think a lot of times when God opens the door for us to have spiritual conversations, we overcomplicate things. And we're like, oh, there's racial issues here. And oh, we might differ sexually. We might differ politically. And how do I, how do I make sure that I say all the right Bible answers? And God's like, stop talking. <laughs> Just listen. And care about this person enough for you not to impose your own will or your agenda or your idea of how this is supposed to work. And let the Holy Spirit do what only the Holy Spirit can do. But it starts with you being available, and it starts with you listening, and then it starts with you being so in tune with Jesus that the Jesus that you explain is a Jesus they want to follow. And as they traveled along the road, I love it, they're having Bible study in a government convertible. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? The Holy Spirit is so pressing on this guy's life that Philip doesn't even have to say, like, okay, you prayed the prayer, fill out this card, join a discipleship group, and then baptism is in three weeks. Like, none of that happens. The guy's like, hey, water, baptism. Like, he, he's, the Holy Spirit is so alive, and he's so hungry, and he's so willing that guess what? He's connecting the dots all by himself. And like when the Holy Spirit is like recklessly at work, things happen organically, friends. We don't have to like wedge and force and strive them all together. What can stand in the way of being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Where did he go on his way rejoicing? Home. Where did he go? Ethiopia. What did he do when he got there? Told other people about Jesus. Guess what? There's a church in Ethiopia because Philip listened to the Holy Spirit. Like you never know. You never know where the shockwave of your invitation will end. You know, never know how far the ripple effect of your love in the name of Jesus will carry. And it could be that one single conversation that you have on an ordinary day completely changes somebody else's spiritual trajectory. And then they go on to change somebody else's spiritual trajectory. And you might not fully appreciate the reach that you have had in one day of obedience this side of eternity. God is not calling us to the obligation of evangelism. He is calling us to the adventure of kingdom expansion. And it is a joy and a privilege and an honor to be a part of these connecting the dots moment where we get to be the mouthpiece through which God invites somebody else to full life. Jesus is constantly preparing spiritual conversations, some people call them divine appointments, for you and I to step into. The only question is, when those moments arise, are you and I ready, willing, and able to step into them? Are we walking with the kind of humility that acknowledges that the Holy Spirit is doing things that we cannot see and might not fully understand? Are we going through every day with the spiritual awareness that God might choose to hijack our agenda with something larger that he is doing? 
And are we allowing God to speak into us to distill the clarity of our message into Christ first and Christ alone and Christ always and Christ is enough? Jesus is inviting runaways to come home and he wants you to be a part of seeing that happen. Jesus is inviting outsiders to come in and he wants you to be a part of facilitating that invitation. And then Jesus wants outcasts, people who are drowning in their own guilt and shame to come clean so they can be set free. And we read this story in John chapter four. Jesus cares about people who are stuck in their hurt, cares about people who are stuck in their questions, cares about people who are stuck in their shame. Listen to this. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria and he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. I love it. This passage reminds us of Jesus' humanity. Jesus is physically tired from his journey. So when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So again, we've got a racial divide, we've got a spiritual divide, and we've got a gender divide. And Jesus is just smashing through every single one of those barriers. And how does Jesus start the conversation? Philip starts the conversation by like, Hey, you're reading something. Do you get it? Jesus starts this conversation by what? Asking for a favor. By asking somebody for help. What is Jesus doing in that moment? He's humbling himself to a woman who has resources, water, that he does not have. Have you ever noticed that like if somebody is standoffish or hostile towards you and you ask them for a simple favor, it completely changes the power dynamic in the conversation? That if you ask them for something that you don't have, that they have, and you won't get unless they give it to you, it completely elevates their agency and their authority in that moment. That's what Jesus is doing to this woman. He's taking a woman who is, shouldn't have any cards to play in this conversation and showing her respect and deference and honor. Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. This is kind of a play on words because in ancient culture, living water was, wasn't a spiritual reference. It was a literal reference. A, a well or a pond or a bucket had standing water. That was dead water. That's where, could, where bacteria and sickness can grow. Living water would have been a stream or a freshwater river. It was something that gave people life. So Jesus is saying, hey, if you had known who you're talking to, I would give you living water um, rather than the water that you're settling for. Now, she's still a little bit lost on the metaphor, so she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, and also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and having to keep coming back here to draw water. She's like, that sounds awesome to have a tap and not have to keep making these trips. 
And she's still not getting it. And Jesus told her, go call your husband and come back. This is where things get interesting. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Is anybody else uncomfortable? I am. This got, this got awkward immediately. Now, but now we start to understand some things, right? Because what time is it when Jesus shows up for water? Noon. What's the hottest part of the day? Noon. If you're having to carry a heavy water jug from the village to the well, and then it's heavier when you go back in the hottest part of the day, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. So why is she out in the worst part of the day when everybody else is at home? Because she's had five husbands. And the person that she's with now is not her husband. And everybody in town has blackballed her as an immoral, shame-filled woman. And she's tired of the gossip, and she's tired of the slander, and she's tired of the dirty looks, and she's tired of people crossing to the other side of the street when she comes their way. Why would she go get water when everybody else does? Why would she put up with that abuse? So she's going to the part of the day that is safest for her emotionally, even though it's the most taxing part of the day for her physically. And so Jesus goes, call your husband. She's like, I don't have one. He's like, yeah, you're right. You've had the equivalent of six. Listen to her response. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. <laughs> you think? <laughs> All right. And, and, and what does she do when she gets uncomfortable? She immediately deflects to having an abstract conversation. Because as soon as anybody starts, like, rifling through the skeletons in your closet, you're like, I would like to talk about something else now. And that's what she does. She goes, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, Gerizim, but you Jews believe that the place where you must worship is Jerusalem. She's trying to bait him into a debate. Jesus won't bite. Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews, yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. She's trying to say, like, Leah, let's have a debate about places. And Jesus goes, God doesn't care where you worship. He cares about who you are when you do. And then the woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. She's like, I don't know the answer. You don't know the answer. Nobody knows the answer. Let's just go on with our lives. One day, Messiah is going to figure it out. And Jesus goes, surprise. Messiah is here now. I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And just then, like on cue, the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, what was the only reason she came to the well that day? To get water. Guess what doesn't matter anymore? Nothing except for Jesus. The woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Now, how many conversations has she had with anybody in the village recently? Probably very few. Like if she's so intimidated that she doesn't want to see them at the well, she probably doesn't want to stand in the middle of the town square and start shouting stuff. But her message is, come meet the man who told me everything I ever did. And some people are like, I would love to meet the man who, who knows everything that you ever did. Sounds like you have a fascinating backstory. 
Um, no, what, why, is, why is this amazing? Like, I don't know about you, but if your whole life has been shame, finding somebody who knows every dark secret about you is not a good thing. It should be terrifying. Why is she excited? Because she's looked into his eyes and knows that even though he knows everything she's ever done, he loves her still. And it means that she's got a shot at grace, a chance at forgiveness, and an opportunity to have a clean slate and start over. If Jesus didn't stop talking to her the second they both acknowledged that she had kind of a sketchy backstory, it meant that he saw value in her beyond her past and her reputation. And then the whole town <laughs> comes out and made their way toward him. See, when Jesus invites this woman to know him, it's not just for her. It's for her live-in boyfriend and for all of her exes and her extended family and her whole village. Jesus doesn't just rescue people as individuals. Jesus likes to rescue people as part of tribes. Because if one domino can fall, maybe the entire array can be changed. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Which, and her testimony is this, he told me everything I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. Now, what's ironic about this? The scriptures tell us that there were, there were Jewish villages that Jesus went to that turned him away. And now he's in a Samaritan village filled with outcasts, and they're begging him to stay. So Jesus stays with them two full days, and because of his words, many more became believers. One conversation with an Ethiopian leads to an entire nation being transformed. One conversation with an outcast at the well leads to an entire village being transformed. One pursuit of a lost sheep leads to an entire herd being transformed. Jesus doesn't just transform individual lives. He changes ecosystems and villages and counties and countries. The scope of the transformation of the resurrection isn't just so that a handful of people can go to heaven when they die. It's so that entire tribes and nations can experience eternal life right now. Jesus weeps over the rebels and the runaways, the outcasts and the outsiders. And he does so because he wants them to live into all that he has for them. Again, not just a ticket to heaven, but a transformed and redeemed life here and now. I hope as you've listened to this simple message about understanding what it means to be connected to God's kingdom, that you're challenged to evaluate that in your own life and you continue to grow in your relationship with Christ. That's what we're about. I want you to know we will be singular focused in the days ahead. Our foundation, our mission is to help people understand and grow in their relationship with Christ at all ages and stages of family development. And we're going to stay focused on that. And we appreciate your support and prayers as we seek to do that. One of the ways you can join in being a support is by simply being a part of our golf outing. Now, normally in the past, it's been called the Big Divot Open. We had to change it obviously because of COVID. And so we decided to do something new this year. In fact, I said, you know what? I'd like to just compete against people. So if you like to golf and you'd like to challenge me in a day of golf, my score against your score, uh, I would love you to come and be a part of this event. It's on July the 15th. You can call our office, 616-772-1733. Ask for Michelle, my assistant, and get signed up to be a part of this day. So your score against my score with your handicap. Yes, I'll give you your handicap. 
and we're going to play each other for a prize. And the goal is, again, to raise funds to support what we do. So if you'd love to take me up on the challenge, I'd love to play you one-on-one, even though there'll be several of us there. And we'll have a good time uh, competing, but I'll also be sharing with you a message I believe God's given me on leadership and what God's looking for us to do in His kingdom. And I look forward to sharing that day with you. Again, July the 15th, check out your calendar and then give us a call. Thank you again for your support. Bless you much as you move into these warm, nice summer months.